Well, good morning, everyone. This is a big day, as I've just said for us, and we're going to look at a big, I think, important passage that really sinks, actually lays a foundation for our multi-siding initiative for all we are about here at Wheaton Bible Church. But I first want to say, if you are here visiting with us and you are looking for a new church, I would love for you to be a part of Wheaton Bible Church, especially because we're sending out 200 people. We would love to get to know you. I will actually be down in front following this service, and if you're visiting, if you're looking for a new church, I would love to meet you, or you can go back to our visitor center just behind this center wall where you will be welcomed and you can meet other staff and other people. We want to help you find a church home. We happen to believe this is a great church. God is doing incredible things, as you've just seen here this morning, and we would like to make that transition as smooth and easy for you as possible. Many of you have moved from other states, other communities, and welcome, welcome, welcome. We would love to get to know you. The other thing I want to mention that Ted already mentioned is this is a big deal tonight. Tonight we're launching our ministry season uh, by having what we call this vision night. It's 6 p.m. information's on the front of your worship folder about it. But here's what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be laying out where we are headed as a church over the next 10 years. Now, we are a multi-campus, multi-congregational church. So we will have our first campus in Streamwood. We have our Hispanic side, our Anglo side, multi-campus, multi-congregational church, and I'm going to be talking about the whole. I'm going to be talking about all of us and talking about specifically about what we're trying to accomplish as a church. That is our mission, and what are those values that will create a culture that will enable us to get there. So we're tweaking our mission. We've adopted these values in terms of leadership, and I'm going to be rolling these out tonight. And it's a wonderful opportunity for you to see what we're about here at Wheaton Bible Church. That's at 6 p.m. Now let's go to this crazy passage, this fascinating passage uh, this morning as we continue this series on Jeremiah that, as Brian said, we've entitled Unshaken because this guy was just one of those guys who was unshaken in his commitment to Jesus Christ. Now this morning, what I want to do is one thing. It's a big thing. It's a complex thing. What I want to do is I want to talk about the Christian and culture. About how we as Christians, where we live, where we work, where we play, should respond to culture especially a difficult, increasingly hostile culture like ours today. I mean, this is exactly what the Jews faced in exile in Babylon, as we'll see here in our passage. Now, each of us, whether you're a student or a teacher, uh, whether you're a young adult or a retiree, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or you're working full-time in the marketplace, each of us do not merely live in a culture, do not merely engage a culture. We are all culture makers, every single one of us, whether it's raising kids, 
uh, playing on a team, playing in the band, uh, coaching a team, uh, directing the band, whether it's working in a restaurant, painting in a house, uh, blogging. Every time you post on Facebook or Snapchat, you're creating culture. It's true whether you're servicing cars or running a, a uh, running a company. All of us, all of us, all the time, are culture makers. So what should that look like? How, how, how can we engage in culture when too often in the church, historically, we have reduced our Christianity to something private, something between me and, and Jesus, when the Bible repeatedly calls us to be public disciples serving a public savior and to engage and to create culture without, without leaving our Christianity behind. What does that look like? Well, turn with me in Jeremiah to chapter 29. It's page 785 in the Bibles in front of you. Turn on your Bibles, grab a Bible, Jeremiah chapter 29. And when we come to chapter 29, we are 10 years before the final fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of Israel by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the empire Babylon. Now, as a matter of history, leading up to this destruction... And then after that destruction, during this 20-year period or so, Nebuchadnezzar was regularly deporting Jews, uh, especially the more influential Jews, out of Jerusalem to Babylon. It was a forced march. It was a forced exile. There are three main ones and our section is addressing the Jews in Babylon who were a part of the first exile. The Bible tells us that elsewhere is about 8,000 Jews now living in Babylon for the first time. And part of the Babylonian po policy was to er eradicate Jewish identity by assimilating them into what they believe, the Babylonians believe, to be their superior uh, culture. So that's what's going on here. That's why Nebuchadnezzar is doing this. It's a time of incredible uh, instability for Israel, a time of incredible frustration. They're being forced into Babylon, and Babylon is in the process of destroying them. It's a brutal, hated culture. And so what happens? Well, here in chapter 29, God writes a letter to these exiles through the prophet Jeremiah that is shocking. It's just shocking. Because of the three ways God calls Israel to respond to the Babylonians. And the first way is God calls them to settle in, engage in culture, and not to withdraw, not to withdraw from the Babylonian culture. And then he will go on, as, as we'll see, to say respectfully resist and do not be compromised by this culture. And then finally, to our surprise, God tells these Jews in Babylon uh, uh, to serve and love and not despise this culture, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how dark it is. 
Another way of saying this is the way we as Christians respond to culture is by being like the people around us, but yet profoundly unlike them, always sacrificially loving them. Like, unlike, and love. And that's the essence of this letter. So let's begin at the beginning and look at this issue, this first way we are to respond to culture of settling in and engaging culture um, and not withdrawing. So let's begin at verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King uh, Jehoiakim and the queen mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers, and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. See the influential uh, strata? Babylon is attempting to wipe out the identity of Israel. And we'll stop there at, at, at verse 2. Now, let me just say parenthetically to get us started. It's natural to wonder when we come to the Bible if the things in the Bible really happen the way the Bible tells us. I have found over the years um, archaeology to be really, really helpful here. Do you know there's never been a single, a single archaeological discovery that has uh, 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 denied anything written in the Bible? As a matter of fact, archaeology has done just the opposite. Over and over, it affirms uh, what we see in the Bible. Now look at this picture. This is a Babylonian tablet written from this time period. That would be 2,600 years ago. Uh, it's what we call cuneiform because the alphabet is wedge-shaped. Thousands of these tablets, going back even further than 2,600 years ago, have been discovered in Babylon, what was ancient Babylon. And on several of these tablets, you know what? We have the names of some of these Jews taken into exile. The name of, uh, of one in chapter 39 He's actually mentioned on this particular tablet, tablet. But then on another tablet, we have the name of this king, King Jehoiakim. Mentioned on a tablet and, and how um, he's to be handled, treated uh, as um, uh, exile. Now, I find that to be remarkable. You're looking at names that are mentioned in our passage. I think it's a remarkably strong argument for the reliability of the Bible. Now let's go on. Let's jump down to verse 4. This is, now here the letter begins. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters into marriage. Now all that within Israel. That's the assumption here. So that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number as Israel there. Do not decrease. Now this is shocking. 
I mean, think about it. Uh, you're a man, you're a woman, you're a young adult, and you've just been taken into this country you despise. <laughs> Babylon is this godless, godless, pagan, idolatrous culture. And yet here in verses 5 and 6, God says, stop living on the fringes. Stop isolating from this culture. Stop acting as a disgruntled tourist. Settle in and live among the Babylonians. Engage with them. Invite them to your parties. Attend their musicals, their sporting events. Work with them. Make this idolatrous culture home. Do you see that? I mean, historically, Israel had been a, a nation that was unified around its belief in God, and its culture supported it. Much like our culture here in the United States, 70, 80 years ago, supported our belief in God. But here, God is saying, yes, I realize that your culture once supported you, but now it's opposed to you. Like we see increasingly uh, here in, in, in the West. But God says, don't flee. Uh, don't condemn. Don't resist. Don't withdraw. Settle in, build homes, farm, uh, 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 find jobs, uh, marry, raise a family, uh, increase in number. Now let me back up. That's verses 5 and 6. I'll come back to them in a minute. But look at verse 4. In verse 4, God says, this is my doing. I carried you into Babylon. It was part of my sovereign plan for you, Israel. I carried you into exile, which means God had reasons for Israel and also for Babylon. Now let me press pause. Today, people say, if God existed, suffering and evil wouldn't, right? I mean, we hear this all the time. If God existed, then suffering and evil wouldn't. Uh, therefore, God doesn't exist. My response to that always has been, well, if God doesn't exist, then you have no basis, no basis for calling anything evil, anything wrong, anything a tragedy. Here, we see God's sovereignty over the suffering and evil Israel has experienced. And we'll experience even more when Jerusalem is leveled by King Nebuchadnezzar. Here what we see is God in his mysterious uh, sovereignty bringing purposes to pass that in our own lives we usually can't access. But just because we can't understand an infinite being doesn't mean he doesn't have his purposes. That's really important. Just because we can't understand what an infinite being is doing doesn't mean he doesn't have his purposes. And so what we see here is that God is sovereign over the nations. God is sovereign over Israel. 
in Israel's glory and in Israel's defeat. And so, of course, God is sovereign over the United States. God is sovereign over this upcoming presidential election. This is one of the reasons the Bible describes uh, God as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's a political statement. God is the King of all kings. And he's the King in good times and Chaotic times, bad times. Now that's verse 4. God says, I carried you. I want to go back now, go down now uh, to verses 5 and 6 because there's something raised here that we don't talk often enough uh, about in the church. And that is, I, I don't want you to miss what is here about vocations, about jobs in the secular world, in a dark world, in a dark place. According to the New Testament, everyone who knows Jesus Christ is what is called a believer priest. Now, that's language of Israel. And what it means to be a believer priest is that every single one of us who know Christ are in all-the-time ministry, we are in full-time ministry, wherever we are, whatever we are doing, and that ministry we have in the secular world is every bit as important as any pastor and any missionary's ministry. Every bit is important. Now, furthermore, the New Testament teaches us that there are many dimensions to that ministry. There's a marriage dimension, family dimension, friend dimension. There's a work dimension. However, one of the most overlooked dimensions is our vocations, what you do to make a living. And yet, every Jew in Babylon here receives a calling from God, including a vocational calling to renew and to contribute to this pagan Babylonian culture through their work. As a matter of fact, when we come to the New Testament, Paul says exactly the same thing more specifically. Look at 1 Corinthians 7. Paul is speaking, he says, nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them. Note the Lord has assigned to them just as God has, and there it is, called them. Now, calling here refers to all aspects of our lives, including our jobs. We have our jobs, we have these talents, we have the, these passions, and it's part of God's calling. Paul will go on in the next couple of verses and talk about our work. Therefore, your work in the world, whatever your jobs are, uh, whether you uh, get paid for it or you, you do it uh, unpaid, all of that has a dignity and a significance so important the language of the Bible describes it as a calling from God. And yet, yet today, even in the church, uh, man, we downplay, we badmouth our job, and we overinflate the work of people that, um, that are pastors and missionaries. And it's not that way in the Bible. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons this has gone down over the last decades is because we have created this dualism. 
between sacred on the one hand and secular on the other, between faith on the one hand and and work on the other. And I want to say to you, it's wrong. There is no dualism. Everything is sacred. As long as we live in this world, secular will taint and touch almost everything we do. But what I want you to see is there's no such dualism or separation here in Jeremiah 29. Instead, Israel is called to to lovingly bring the lordship of, uh, of God, we would say, this side of the cross, the lordship of Jesus Christ, uh, to bear on every area of life, whether it's business or school, whether it's media or politics, to bring it to bear on our, our entire web of relationships. And so what does that look like? Well, that means we live public lives. And we act as Christians in the world. We speak up as Christians in the world. And when the world is against us, we rest in the sovereignty of God. So God begins by saying, I carried you. This was my doing. I am in control, even though I'm taking you into this period of incredible hardship. Your vocations matter to God, and God matters to your vocations. All right, let me go on. There's a second way here we are to respond to our culture. Because God is saying respectfully resist and don't compromise. He's saying be profoundly unlike. And this is the point beginning in verse 10. Let's read. This is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, the 70-year captivity, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back into this place. Now we have this wonderful verse, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Now think about that. God is saying, seek the prosperity of Babylon, I will prosper you. Verse 11, or 12 rather, then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and the places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Do you see what's going on? God is saying to Israel, Babylon is your home, but it's not your real home. I'm coming back to take you home in 70 years. So don't withdraw from Babylon, Babylonian culture, but don't be destroyed by it. Don't capitulate to it. Don't be consumed by it. here's part of why. If if we withdraw from culture, from the world around us, we lose our audience. And we become perceived as spiritual porcupines. But if we are compromised, consumed by culture, what happens is we lose our message. 
and we become spiritual chameleons. Changing color with every circumstance we're in. No, no spiritual backbone. To use a New Testament term, what God is calling Israel to be in Babylon is to be ambassadors. To live in a foreign society, learn a foreign language. Uh, to build bridges into that culture, to, to honor that, that culture. But along the way, never ever forgetting that you serve another king. You, resent, you represent another's king's values, kingdom values. Now, we desperately need to think about what this means for us today in the West. Researchers tell us that the supreme value, it's now become so supreme that it's really perceived as an absolute. Uh, in the West, the supreme value in the West is individual autonomy, the individual self, the individual. So self-fulfillment, self-assertion, self-definition, personal happiness, and staying in a relationship only as long as I'm getting something out of it has now become the norm. And it's worse. Because now today, and this has happened the last 10 or 15 years, this is viewed as morally neutral, non-condemning. It's viewed as the value-free uh, uh, approach to life in contrast to people who believe in God, believe in religion, who are, in the eyes of the world, condemning, discriminatory, and hateful. Now, both are wrong. Both are wrong. But I say this because you will not understand what's happening around you today, in our world today. Um, you will not understand what's happening if you don't understand that this dominance of the self, the, the self-absolute ties, is underneath everything going on. But it's not working. It's not working in our schools. It's not working in our cities. It's not working in our culture. And all of them are in crisis because of the dominance of the individual over all else. And hear me, this is our Babylon. We're in the middle of it. The people use, and, and I will too, marriage as an illustration. An illustration of what's going on in our culture. If um, one person or, or both people in a marriage, the, the spouses adopt a me-first approach to life and marriage, where they go first, their needs ahead of anyone else's, then over time what's going to happen is that marriage is going to struggle and it'll probably die. But on the other hand, conversely, if one or especially both of the 
couples, instead of adopting a, a me-first approach to the marriage, adopt a you-first, you-before-me approach to that marriage, well, that marriage is going to uh, experience a, a deepness and a richness that's going to last for a lifetime. Me first versus you first. Now think about it. When Jesus Christ came into the world, what approach did he take? The you first. You before me. My life. For years. For your life. So we live in Babylon. <laughs> and Babylon is a me first culture and not compromising not assimilating and that's what we're talking about here means that in all our relationships whether it's with your family or your neighborhood or where you work or with your culture with your community uh, in the church and in the different things you do recreationally and um, not compromising means you always always say you first it's part of who you are. Uh, because you know, and hear me in this, everything is fracturing and will fracture if you adopt a me first. And you don't compromise. You are profoundly unlike the culture around us on this. So let's, uh, let me take it a step further. Let's take sex. Uh, if you say to someone, as is common in our, our culture today, um, hey, I want to have sex with you, but I don't want a relationship with you, and I certainly don't want a permanent relationship with you, what is that? that that's me first. But if on the other hand, because you haven't been assimilated or compromised by our culture, and you young adults, hear me, you take a you first approach and you say, you know, sex can wait. Because I want to give to someone. I want to give myself to someone, which is what sex is all about, in the context of a permanent marriage. Me first versus you first. And, and this is all around us. This is everything we see, every, everything we hear. Let me go on to the third. Now, conclude with this. The third way we are to respond to culture. We are to be like, we are to be profoundly unlike, and we are to love. So this third point is we serve and love our culture. And we do not, we do not despise it. And you're thinking, well, what, what in the world do you mean by love? Well, this is verse 7. Let's look at verse 7. Verse 7 is the key verse here. God says to Israel, and seek also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, love doesn't mean you, you agree with everything, you endorse everything, or you participate in everything. No way. 
then you're compromised. Love, according to verse 7, means you seek the peace and prosperity uh, uh, based on your values of your city. You seek the peace and prosperity of your neighborhood, of, uh, of where you work, of the, of the people around you, of your co- country. It's John 3, 16 applied to relationships, human relationships. What does John 3, 16 say? For God so loved the world. The world? God so loved the world that he sent his son to do what? To seek the peace and prosperity of the world. That's Jeremiah 7 applied to our relationships with culture in a Babylon. Now what I want you to understand is that uh, in verse 7 we have these two words, peace and prosperity, but in the Hebrew, which is the original language of the Old Testament, there is only one word. And it's this famous, fabulous Hebrew word, shalom. And the reason it's translated by two words in English is because we don't have one English word that does justice to shalom. Because shalom means, on the one hand, wholeness and uh, contentment and happiness, peace. But on the other hand, it also means flourishing, prosperity, and health in every aspect of life. It's this beautiful, full-orbed umbrella concept. And God is saying to the Jews, that's what you're about in Babylon. Amazing, shocking. So, for example, what is this? Well, this is the Jew that so knows her neighbors and is so involved with her neighbors that when a neighbor's child gets sick, she organizes bringing meals week after week to serve that neighbor. It's the Jew that sees his work or, or her work, uh, whatever it is, as, as an opportunity, an opportunity to be a tool of God's grace in the lives of other people. That's what it means to seek the common good, to, to see yourself as a tool of God's grace in the life of people around you. Uh, so uh, that you, uh, this man, this woman, is kind, is caring, listens, and is generous. Frankly, it's why if I could go back eight years, when we moved to this beautiful campus at the same time simultaneously, we began this significant ministry in West Chicago. And we went into the largest apartment complex in West Chicago. And we set up offices, we set up this ministry that has just been growing year after year, and it's now spreading into other areas in West Chicago. And you know what happened with Timberlake, the apartment complex? Uh, God used us, used the people involved, hundreds of people involved in, in, in this ministry so that Timberlake moved from being a dangerous red zone to a much safer green zone. And that's where it is today. We sought the peace and prosperity of Timberlake, of schools, and we're still at it. 
It's why we're sending these couple hundred people to Streamwood, to Dry Village, to seek the peace and, the peace and prosperity of that Dry Village area through lifting up Christ and seeking the good of all people, especially the vulnerable, the under-resourced. It's evangelism and being a tool of God's grace in whatever way he wants you to be. But there's one other thing I want you to see. Look at the second, the final sentence in verse 7. God calls Israel to pray. To pray for this city. To pray for these people. Because God says, if they prosper, then you will prosper. Now, God isn't saying this is just about you, Israel. And there are means to the end. And God isn't saying, uh, pretend you like these people, but it's okay if you really on the inside hate them. God is saying, love them. Now, how so? Because God knows uh, you can't pray for someone, you can't pray for a city unless you love it. And God knows one of the ways we learn to, to love, and we actually do love people, especially difficult people, is by learning to pray for them. So one pastor illustrates it this way. Let's say you have a, a massive struggle with bitterness towards another person. Or you're really, really angry for the injustice another person has committed towards you. And you want to, you want to get past it. You want to move past it. All, all of us do. So what do you do? Well, this pastor says, man, you make a list of all the needs of that person you're so mad at. All their needs... And you commit to day after day for a long period of time praying through that list of their needs. And you know what happens? Your bitterness and your anger goes away. Because in praying for them, you learn to love them. There is nothing like prayer to get over anger. There's nothing like prayer to get over bit, uh, bitterness. And so I wonder... Who among us will pray for Chicago? The streets of Chicago. Who among us is going to pray for the communities around us? For the Tri-Village area as we launch? Who among us is going to pray for where we work and the neighborhoods we live in? For the evil empires in, in play in the world right now? Who's going to pray like that if we don't? And I ask myself, Rob, why in the world is it you spend so much time praying for your church, praying for your family, praying for your pray friends, praying for this and that, and you don't pray for Chicago? Some of you need to stop condemning and criticizing culture. Some of you need to take a huge step back and repent from being compromised by culture. But all of us need to serve and seek the peace and prosperity of our culture, of Chicago, uh, uh, of the streets, of, of the United States, of all these different places where we are. Now, I'll conclude with this. Does that remind you of someone? Well, yes. 
Jesus Christ, who left the splendor of heaven and moved into our neighborhood, our workplaces. He came to us as ugly as it was for him. And to the extent you see Jesus suffering and dying for you because of his you-first love, and to the extent that you can say, I have the blood of an innocent man all over me. And because of your heart, because of you, your disordered loves, you know it's not just the Babylonians, it's me. And, and, and so you can say, it was I that uh, shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified Christ of God. I joined the mockery. It's not just them, it's me. To the extent you can say that, and to the extent you see Jesus Christ as raised from the dead and ruling as king and kings, then you will be free, regardless of the culture, to live a you-first life. And one of the things I love about this passage is what it promises. So look at verse 11 again. Verse 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. All the promises of God come to us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. So, Father, we come to you because we are amazed at what you have done for us. In a moment like this, I need to ask you, God, for forgiveness. We need to ask you for forgiveness. For either, on the one hand, writing off culture, or on the other hand, becoming um, totally compromised by it. Would you help us to hear your word here? Would you enable us as individuals, as families, as a church, as different campuses with different congregations to take this to heart? Set us on fire, God. Use us to redeem and to seek the good of culture. In Jesus' name, amen.